Well, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again. And tonight we have Ford Fisher from News to Share, possibly one of the most annoyingly ethical journalists I know. Ford, you want to tell him anything about yourself? Sure. So uh, as Bo just pointed out, um, I have a very specific kind of formula to my journalism. I do live stream and raw footage on my outlet news to share. So sometimes you'll see on my own personal kind of wall, you know, I have opinions. I certainly have them, but as far as my actual news coverage of events is concerned, I basically use raw video that has uh, very, very little of my own even speaking uh, in the content. It's just video that shows exactly the thing happening and live stream that shows the thing happening beginning to end. And I think that that's an unusual formula in today's day and age where a lot of journalism is about kind of postulating and opinions and thinking, you know, CNN will kind of be like, we are objective because we have someone on the right and we have someone on the left and we're sticking Anderson Cooper in the middle of them. And so since we have three people talking instead of just one, what you're left with is truth. And I would say that, uh, you know, it's not truth. It's just three people's opinions instead of one. So um, so what I do tries to present kind of a new formula, and I think that it's one that is, uh, you know, popular with the people who watch it. I think that, uh, in general, the concept of truth is one that seems to be kind of evolving in the media and, uh, you know, what they think of it. And so, uh, I've come up with my method of bringing it to people. Other people can have theirs in good faith, but, uh, but that's how I go about it. And it has, uh, it's worked out for you. You, you've had your footage used like everywhere, pretty much. Right. So, I mean, this is part of why I think it's important as well, is that it's really a building block to begin the conversation. So when I say, oh, my footage is pure truth, it's pure raw video, you know, I'm just putting out this is the video of the thing happening. I'm not trying to tell people that that's all they should have to sort of think about there are more steps from there. It's the starting point, right? It requires a little thinking on other people's ends. So uh, for one thing, there's there's the comment section. And I'm not saying that that's always a, a clean and easy and unhostile place to be. But um, but beyond the comment section, you know, other other media, be it independent or mainstream media or documentaries, or even in a few cases, fiction films, uh, can also license that footage or embed it into their stories and so forth. Um, so having that raw record of what people are talking about, I think actually can complement those other methods of media. So, you know, I sometimes might joke about things like, oh, let's all get together the independent media. Let's crush the mainstream media. But in reality, I actually think that the mainstream media is uh, better. It's forced to improve itself when raw video exists of the things they're talking about. It keeps them honest. They can't take things as well out of context if you can go back and look at the original. Yeah. Well, I mean, they still can, but it's a little harder. Um, it's harder and they'll get called out. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you, you you brought it up. Indie versus uh, corporate media. What are your thoughts? Huh. Well, uh, this, this might be one issue where I'm willing to admit bias uh, as the owner of an independent media brand. But, you know, I... I do think that there can be a role for both. I, I don't necessarily think that we can just decimate cable news overnight. Um, I realize that the benefits they have, for example, higher budget, literally higher quality of uh, equipment. Um, but I also just think that the incentives that they have 
uh, drive a style of news that is not always good. The 24 hour news cycle um, creates this incentive that like every hour we need to have uh, breaking news, right? Breaking news doesn't happen every single hour, right? <laughs> I had a journalism professor once who uh, was talking about how he worked at BBC for a while, but way, way back, like in the 70s, you could turn on the news in Britain and they would say, there was no news today. <laughs> and that would be it. Moving on. Right. Um, I don't think that we live in a newsless world. I'm not saying that that's the case, but there's an incentive to have this kind of uh, inundation of everything is kind of blown up every every hour. Something has to be breaking. Um, and it's also this fast pacedness that. You like sit and reflect on these individual stories, these individual moments, the amount of detail that I put into each individual story um, I think is really complete where if I go to a protest that's two hours long, there's two hours of footage that you can go, you as I'm losing you for you a million stories in a day. We, we had a little bit of technical difficulty there. What, what was that last part? Okay. Sorry. Um, what I was saying is that uh, whereas the, the mainstream media needs to uh, spit out, you know, 100 stories an hour when you're watching the cable news, I mean, really more like 20, but when you're watching cable news, an hour of cable news, they've got to tell you about 20 different things and you're getting like 90 seconds of each um, versus for someone like me or someone like you or, or really anybody in independent media, we can focus as much as we feel we need to on an individual story to get it out there. So in the case of my format, I live stream an entire story beginning to end I, so that all of that footage is, is accessible. Someone can see literally every single thing that I saw out there. And then they can watch the raw footage summary that I put out or the tweets that I put out afterwards if they if they want, or even the mainstream media's use of my uh, of my stuff. So people like you and I, we can make a complete story. Uh, the mainstream media is incentivized to uh, cut it down to its bare bones. Absolutely. And this actually might be a good time. I'm... I'm kind of realizing that while people who follow indie media they know who you are there's a lot of my audience that isn't uh it isn't just immersed in the indie media world so we might want to tell them the footage from charlottesville you know and, and kind of give them a little bit of a bio on you as far as where you've been rather than just here's, sure here's yeah so guy. to get yeah to the sort of specifics of it so most of what i cover is activism of some form or another. So I, I do film, you know, uh, senators, Congress people, the president on occasion. But but really, the majority of what I cover is street activism because I think that it uh, it I think it has a few great things sort of about it about covering it. Um, I think that it represents what the most passionate people on every side of the country are thinking. In a way, it offers insight into the place that we're in in America, right? Um, and so, for example, um, you know, really the first big... We lost you again. Were the Black Lives Matter uh, era of 2014 and 2015. We actually um, lost that again. Oh, <laughs> fantastic uh i tell you right. what yeah let's let's take a quick break if you're at home we're gonna take a quick break 
and we're going to come right back. And we're back. Uh, hopefully that'll resolve our issues. Okay, so Ford, you were telling us how amazing you were and everywhere you've been. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, so I realize you've got to kind of stitch it together because of these connection issues. But uh, what I was trying to say is that uh, the first kind of big stories that myself and the co-founder covered that I think got us onto the map were in the Black Lives Matter era in sort of 2014 and 2015 when that uh, movement began. And there was a lot of discussion in the media, uh, both of the issues that they were talking about, but also of, oh, look at this this movement, it's violent and so forth, right? The actual tactics of the movement. And again, I think that this was an, uh, a spot where someone like Fox News and or a, an organization like Fox and an organization like MSNBC or CNN are covering it in very different ways, where if you were to watch Sean Hannity, all you're seeing is sort of 10 second, 10 second clips of activists saying things like pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. It happened. They did say that. But it, that's not like a main Black Lives Matter chant. You don't I don't think I've heard that, you know, more than like one or two times, you know, in a career. Um you know, whereas some of the other organizations might look at the groups more slightly more sympathetically, um, you know, and I would bear in mind that even Barack Obama was re referring to these uh, activists as as thugs, right? You know, trying to seem unsympathetic. Um, and so rather than just have, you know, images of the fire and the violence that happened for part of the time, right? I, I think it was important that um, myself and again, the co-founder, we went to, he went to Ferguson. I was with him in Baltimore. There was also a lot of it in D.C., and we shot a lot of raw footage of activists talking to us and and marching peacefully. And in some cases, it would turn violent. But I think that raw footage helped us show where exactly did the violence start on those on those times. People go from peaceful to violent. What actually triggers them? Right. What actually causes that that moment? What frustration are they feeling? Um, and how does the violence end up precipitating? So. You know, in the case of Baltimore, something that I don't think you would ever see if you were watching the mainstream media, and I think it is a little bit hard to explain, but uh, when violence would go on, when it would kind of escalate into rioting, uh, police would block off certain streets, and they were essentially guiding what direction uh, protesters would go in. And so there was this talking point that I heard a lot on the media that says, oh, why are they burning down their own communities? Uh, you know, why are they, you know, looting their own stores? Uh, in, in a lot of cases, they were literally directed that way uh, by the police. It doesn't mean they didn't do it. It doesn't mean the police literally said, go loot this store. Um, but there were a lot of dynamics that I just don't think you can um, show with, without real, actual, raw footage. And the mainstream media is basically never going to give you that. Uh, additionally, like in the case of Baltimore specifically, uh, rioting, actual violence began on April 25th. Uh, we were there on April 24th. We showed the the first night of protesting, and it actually was peaceful. The the cops were following in helicopters. They were walking around kind of with batons, you know, sort of ready to go. Uh, but nothing escalated. And I think that there is a little bit of a warped incentive when the mainstream media looks at activist movements and it says, you know, we would cover this, but you didn't burn anything down, right? What If someone is trying to say... I'm in a community that I feel is being 
victimized that I feel is is that that you know existentially I don't feel like I'm starting the violence I feel like I'm drawing attention to it right if someone's only going to pay attention to you when it becomes violent uh that sets up a system of incentives where where riots happen right as as sort of MLK said riots are the language of the unheard um I did not know y'all were in Ferguson Oh, connection lost. Uh, I saw I, I saw it flipped out, but did you hear uh, that last bit? No, I, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't know y'all were in Ferguson. Um, Trey was. The, my co-founder was in Ferguson. Oh, I was in okay. Baltimore with him. I, I didn't personally go to Ferguson. He was sending video back to me, and I was editing and publishing it. Oh, okay. yeah. That, that, that was very much what you were describing in Baltimore. It was pretty much the same thing there. Um, right. Very, very, very similar. Um, okay, and so they after were, that, yeah, and they were historically, like in terms of time timeline wise, they they happened pretty close to each other. I think Michael Brown was Octo mm-hmm. was killed October twenty fourteen, um, and Freddie Gray uh, April of twenty fifteen. Yeah, and uh, so you uh, after that your your big one, the one where you <laughs> got launched into superstardom, was uh, uh, was Charlottesville. Right. So the distinction that I would make, and I'll, I'll uh, give some overview of that, but I think that there is a really important distinction that kind of happens somewhere in between from Black Li- the Black Lives Matter era to this era of Antifa and white nationalists and so forth. Um, something really essential changed in, in 2014 and 2015 filming activist movements. And of course, by the way, most of the activist stuff that I cover is actually peaceful. It is nonviolent. But um, but when there was that violence, the conflict was people versus the state or people versus what I might more broadly call like the man, right? So Black Lives Matter is fighting uh, the cops. And in some cases, they're destroying businesses and so forth. But they're not destroying the businesses because they think that the businesses are explicitly kind of against them. It represents something about the sort of the system. And in some cases, it's opportunistic about, you know, taking things and so forth. But but the the violence at its root, it wasn't between Black Lives Matter and a rival activist organization, right? It, it was people versus the state when you essentialize the, the conflict. Um, then something changed, and it was orange. <laughs> um, and it became the president. <laughs> Um, the Trump era, um, I think in some ways was reactionary to the Obama era. In some ways it might've been reactionary to the types of politics for which Black Lives Matter was a symptom. Um, but, uh, that really changed the landscape where the, the violence, the conflict did not anymore focus just toward the state, but it focused on citizens who support one thing versus citizens who support another thing. Um, and I had seen that violence start to sprout up at other activist sort of demonstrations uh, before Charlottesville. And that did include the emergence of uh, the alt-right as a popular movement. My understanding, and I was shocked when I actually learned this, is that Richard Spencer had been advocating alt-rightism using that word since like 2008. Um, and I, you know, I had never heard of this guy until 2017. Um, and the first time I filmed him was April of 2017, so um, about four months before Charlottesville happened. 
So he starts becoming more prominent because the Overton window perhaps has been moved a little bit in his direction. Um, to some extent, I think the mainstream media kind of wanted that to happen um, in order to criticize Trump. Um, but to some extent, I think ideologically it did move in his direction enough that he felt, you know, empowered. And, and I think he exploited that, you know, with the hail Trump speech and things like that. But uh Clearly, that was starting to get people angry at each other. And so when I was filming demonstrations, the violence was no longer about um, Black Lives Matter versus the cops or the sort of early baby Antifa movement uh, at that time uh, versus the cops. Uh, it was more of uh, people versus people where the police found themselves separating, you know, Richard Spencer and his group from uh, the Antifa type people. And so we ended up with this kind of three-sided uh, violent uh, sort of set of situations. Um, I will say as a quick anecdote, and I am getting to Charlottesville, but as one quick finer point, those, um, I think some people might wrongly assume that the same types of people participating in that Black Lives Matter era in what I guess you might call the left versus the state um, would be the same people who are participating in sort of the left versus the right. And there actually was a lot of, I would say, growing pains uh, between those two movements. Um, there was a time, um, I would say, when the Antifa movement was just starting, when I would cover Black Lives Matter situations in Washington, D.C., uh, white anarchist was a was a criticism, right? When When white people would show up and try to uh, act outside of the established uh, sort of parameters that they that the Black Lives Matter movement had set up. For example, if they said our level of risk for this event is low, we're marching on the sidewalk or we're marching on the sidewalk until we get to this park because the park is the place that we're doing it and we're gathering for safety and so forth. And then I would see like a white anarchist kind of guy be like, let's take the streets. And they'd, do, they'd be like, dude, stop it. And I remember them actually... They'd yell at it. They'd be like, you stop using your white privilege, right? We don't feel comfortable doing what you're doing right now. Stop it. And so they're, they're, those groups um, were at each other's throats for a little while. And and even to today, um, depending on what city you're in, they, they are not coordinating with each other. They're still doing things independently. Black Lives Matter in D.C. is really focused on a few specific kind of community issues and policing issues, whereas the D.C.'s Antifa movement is really focused on like right-wing adversary, like citizen right-wing adversaries. So anyway, with, with all of that in mind, um, and I think that distinction is important because it, the left is not one homogenized group, as the right is not either. When Charlottesville happened, the concept of it, right, theoretically what Charlottesville was about was uniting the right, that these uh, right-wing groups were going to get together every single faction, all the way from the from the Hitler-loving, full-on neo-Nazis, right? And they were hoping that they were going to bring in every kind of right-winger all the way down to uh, just MAGA Republicans, right? You know, and if they were really lucky, maybe a Jeb t-shirt would show up. <laughs> I'm, I'm half kidding. I didn't see any Jeb shirts. Uh, but there were certainly some red ball caps. knew what it was going to turn into. Um, they saw that there were uh, neo-Nazis who were going to be speaking. And so most even somewhat uh, 
you know, moderate or not quite all the way white nationalist or neo-Nazi groups basically dropped out. The Proud Boys said, we're officially not going. Um, and only a, a couple of actual Proud Boys showed up and theoretically their involvement was disavowed. So everyone who shows up is is sort of this coalition of white nationalists and extremists and so forth. Um, somewhat, I'll, I'll say somewhat symmetrically on the left, not similarly, but in, in the same vein, on the left, it really did bring together a coalition of a lot of different groups that really were not working together otherwise. So you had people like Cornell West and clergy people um, who were there and trying to sort of stand between the two sides, link arms uh, and kind of pray. Um, and you also had the kind of uh, black bloc clad Antifa folks and you had uh, Black Lives Matter organizations. These are not people who normally get together. The you know I don't know if you've ever been to church. First, my joke: the connection was lost. I can't believe the connection was just lost as I made a very funny joke. I thought. Yeah, that's that's certainly what it sounded like. Uh, we, you... I, I cut out at. Uh... I don't know if you've ever been to church. That's where I lost you. <laughs> well, yeah, you missed the punchline. What I was going to say is the clergy were in Charlottesville, Black Lives Matter were in Charlottesville, and Black Black Block clad Antifa people were in Charlottesville. I don't know if you've been to church. Ordinarily, you wouldn't have a, a ninja uh, outfitted uh, activist being invited up to the pulpit to preach um, alongside the clergy. But so this was bringing together very different uh, factions of people who oppose white nationalism. Um, and so it, it ended up kind of being more unifying of an event for the left than for the right, who the event was billed as being unified for. Um, but of course, uh, you know, enormous violence broke out between the two sides over the course of those uh, three days. And um, my footage has been used by dozens and dozens of documentaries um, and quite frankly, as well as in the prosecution of a few of these guys, um, because it in it, in the first place, it showed uh, James Alex Field six minutes before the car attack that left Heather Hare dead. Um, and that showed the uh, direction that he was going and where he was six minutes beforehand. And that worked against his uh, defense of, uh, you know, freaking out because it showed basically that he drove past where he uh, would do the car attack. And so he had to basically drive around in a circle to get back to where it happened. Um, my footage also showed uh, Richard Preston, who was a Klan leader. Uh, uh, connection lost again. I saw the connection was lost for a second. Yeah, I got a... Uh... Right up to Richard to Preston. You got a a right up to him? No, I, that that's all I could hear when you came. Oh, 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 oh! I thought you were saying you wrote him a letter. I was like, really? Why? <laughs> no, 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 that that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, what I was saying is, um, I got a shot over the shoulder of Richard Preston as he pointed a handgun at a crowd twice, and minutes after that happened. He fired it um, and he missed. He didn't hit anybody, but uh, he is in jail for the next four years. Um, and my footage was also used at his 
uh, presentation. He pled no contest. So the prosecution basically uh, presented this is what we would have shown at trial if you, um, you know, if, if it had gone to trial. Um, and then more recently, uh, an individual named James Reardon, who was only 20, uh, allegedly threatened to shoot up a uh, Jewish community center on Instagram. And um, I found this individual in my footage from Charlottesville as well. Um, he would have only been or he was only 18 when Charlottesville happened. Right. Um, that's hard to think about in a way. Right. That I have an 18 year old uh, swinging around a baton, screaming the N word um, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia that day. So uh, the, these these characters, I guess you could say, keep coming up. This footage keeps being relevant. Um, in another case, there was a guy named uh, Taylor Wilson, who uh, is now doing 14 years on terrorism charges for uh, taking over an Amtrak train. Uh, I also have footage of him fighting during the Torchlit rally that happened at UVA the night before. So um, every day there, there becomes some new reason to critically analyze, uh, you know, what I saw then. Um, the people who were involved, why they were involved, what were they saying, what were they doing? Um, and so I think that that's why it's important to get really complete raw documentation because uh, you can't analyze a CNN story that's 90 seconds long in the same way. You can't analyze, you know, uh, CNN anchors sitting in Atlanta and just showing a little bit of B-roll on repeat while they analyze what it means for Trump's reelectability. <laughs> you know, that that doesn't help you understand the situation, why it happened, who was involved and where they went from there. And on that note, one thing I definitely want to get you to talk about while you're here is give us some uh, general ethical guidelines for journalists. And you're definitely somebody that can do that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I do think that there reasonable people can disagree about exactly the right way to go about these things. I, I have a very specific formula that I stick to. And I realize that other people who contribute valuable journalism uh, do things differently. And in some formats, it, it would be impossible to apply what I what I do. But so for me, it's a, what in what I do, my value is that it is basically facts only, that it's just straight up. Here's what happened. Here's what they're saying. So when I go out to a situation, uh, I do not try to trip people up. When I do interviews, my questions are. Uh, extremely basic to the effect of uh, what are you what are you doing out here? What do you think of the other side's argument? The other side says blank. What do you say to that? But our connection lost. And we're back. <laughs> I need you to start saying connection lost earlier, because as soon as you say it, it seems like we come back. Right. Um, what I was saying is, so when I'm when I'm out there, I don't argue with people, even when I, uh, as a matter of fact, in my own heart, disagree with them. I'm do I do my interviews in a way that is purely uh, understanding who they are and what it is they're arguing and why and what they're saying to the other side. Um, even better is when I can literally film one side and the other side actually arguing with each other face to face, um, because you're seeing that that uh, problem kind of in action. Um, 
so I try to have it be very fly in the wall on the wall. And insofar as my own involvement in a situation is concerned, obviously, or changing something microscopically by by pulling someone aside to interview them. But but the goal is not to change the situation. Right. Um, I I don't I, I have some people who who dislike this formula because they say that it is um, in some cases, they'll say that it's platforming one side. And this criticism basically says something like, if you are filming a group, uh, do some kind of uh, uh, hateful, advocate a hateful idea, and you're filming them do it, then you're providing them with a platform. And I understand where those people are coming from. I actually, I, I see the point that they are making, um, but, I, but I disagree with the, with the actual outcome. For, firstly, I do think it's really important to cover these things exactly the way they're happening uh, so that we can understand what is happening. If if your goal is to uh, repudiate or fight hatred, um, which I think it is if someone ha earnestly has the concern that I just described, uh, you need to know what is being said in order to uh, explain why it is wrong. Um, further, though, I, I actually don't see filming at public demonstrations as platforming, and I'll, I'll sort of explain why. When when I go out and film something, I am only filming things that would be happening if I wasn't filming them. I'm, I'm making a record of events that I consider to be historical, and I think that my view that they are historical is validated by the fact that they end up in these documentaries and films, and, and people need that analysis, and the mainstream media is missing it. So there's there's a reason that this stuff is important. What I think platforming is, and where I would actually be much more sympathetic to the argument that I just described, is when somebody invites one of these people uh, into their home <laughs> or something, right? Joe Rogan invites... Uh, Andrew Yang, and I'm not criticizing Andrew Yang by saying this, but when Joe Rogan says, hey, Andrew Yang, would you like to come to my studio, sit on my chair and speak into my microphone with me uh, for four hours straight on a live stream on my YouTube channel? That's platforming because he's inviting him into a situation. He's literally handing him a microphone. He's literally providing uh, a platform in that case. I, I don't really do that. So the way that you are interviewing me right now, someone could say you are platforming uh, me. But um, I don't think that that's the case when I go out and I cover movements that are out on the streets doing something. Their platform is the public. Their platform is the First Amendment. And the other difference is that uh, when people say, oh, but you're not opposing them, in public, people actually do have the opportunity to oppose them. It's the other activist side. I saw that we just had a, yeah. Um, what I was just saying in case they didn't hear it. Um, as a journalist, when I go out and cover a public demonstration, it's not my job to describe that one side is right or wrong because other activists can actually be doing that. It's not my position in that situation to be doing it. Whereas I can understand that if Joe Rogan is inviting somebody to uh, be interviewed on his thing, then there, there is nobody else other than Joe Rogan in that moment, moment or his other guests to be repudiating the person's ideas. It's kind of it's him versus that person. So for me, it's recording every side of the situation that happens, the the left, the right, as much as those those terms are overly you know broad. But the, the two sides, the police, 
uh, any other side that might show up, whatever it is, my role is to record. If someone is actually setting up a platform, uh, such as inviting someone to sit on their couch and interview them, um, then there might be a different role for that kind of person. But that's actually, that's just not the type of uh, journalism that I do. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, <laughs> I think that uh, both the, you saying you're not platforming and the people saying that you are, are both right. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're both pursuing a different goal. Um, so the, the view on, the view on that's going to be different. You, you don't have the same perspective. Um, you know, if they're, mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to say that I have ever masked up, but if I had, I would be trying to stop somebody from getting that message out. And if I was wearing my press cap, I, I certainly wouldn't. Um, there's, there's definitely a, uh, I definitely think both of those viewpoints are valid. Um, you, you have different jobs, and in that moment, they're in opposition. And I think that this actually might be exactly where the distinction comes in. Uh, you do you do hit the the <laughs> nail on the head. Um, you just described that if you are an activist, then you're thinking there's a problem with what the journalist is doing, and you're describing that if you're the journalist, then you don't have a problem with what the journalist is doing. So this good faith um disagreement i think comes from the fact that they are inherently different roles i myself am in the role of a journalist and I, I don't claim to be an activist but i have uh but almost entirely all of my work and all of the people i'm surrounded with are activists so am i going to get blowback on on those those issues where an activist might want journalism to be different of of course right um I, I won't name this uh, person, but I had uh, a situation once, actually, this was this was a harder situation for me. I think I was pretty comfortable in making the point that I just made. But I had a situation that I I, um, you know, I I felt steadfast in my belief. But at the same time, I, you know, I was bothered to some extent by it. I had a situation where I was filming a protest where, again, in order to not identify this person, I won't describe a situation too extremely. But I was filming a right winger doing a thing and. Uh, there were some people wearing masks uh, who came. <laughs> is this when you got hit with the bottle? Of the other side. And those people, no, this isn't the pee situation. Uh, I, I'll describe that after, because now everybody's going to want to know since I called it the pee situation. Uh, no, not that one. Mm. There was a guy who I filmed uh, on the right who basically the left uh, assaulted him in some way. I, again, I don't want to describe it too specifically and then have people know what the story is, but they did something that would pretty, that would be a, a simple assault of some kind. And when the police arrested the four people who uh, were involved in this, um, they, I was live streaming it and they actually unmasked one of them. They pulled, they pulled the mask off and the person's face was seen in my video. And, and later they were, someone had expressed quite some discontent to me about we went to the thing masked and then your and then your face ended up in the live stream right uh can you delete it and in my opinion no i i covered something that i showed the way that police handled a situation um i think it's important actually that you if you believe the police did something wrong that you be able to point out how they did it wrong and if the police accuse you of doing something more than you did you should be able to show that too 
And I and I think that that live stream is the only way to actually have that raw evidence of of what happened. I'm serving truth more than I'm serving you. And so uh, I actually, in many cases, feel more comfortable when activists wear masks because then I think they're going to be less concerned about whether my camera is going to cause them to inadvertently be identified by someone they don't want to be identified as. So I'm I'm certainly not in the business of trying to figure out who masked people are. But if someone's mask comes off and they haven't uh, sort of gotten themselves out of the direction of the, the action, and in that case, I realize that they had a sort of helpless situation, which is that they're being arrested by the police. Um, but it creates those difficult moments where I, I do think that my highest priority is is truth, where it is about uh, showing what's going on. To the uh, thing that I think you thought I was about to talk about, um, there was a situation where I had filmed uh, – some proud boys, patriot prayer, generally, I guess I'd say MAGA people, um, versus uh, a, a group of Antifa people in Providence, Rhode Island. And the Providence, Rhode Island police have a really uh, unique uh, tactic. It's called doing nothing. <laughs> so literally the cops were so it i'll put it in order because everybody was sort of smushed together but the order would surprise you it was there's all the antifa people and then there's like me kind of in the middle and then there's the right wingers like smushed like right kind of behind me and then there's the cops you would think that the order would be left wing cops me on one of the sides because i can't exactly be in the middle of the police line but you know somewhere in the middle Right. And then the right wingers. No, the cops just stood stood aside and just watched as uh, and perhaps they had a fetish of some kind that they wanted to watch this happen. But um, the Antifa basically started dumping uh, bottles of urine on people. And so they did actually pour uh, pee on me. <laughs> <laughs> You're waiting for the punchline. I saw you like holding back laughter because you knew it was. Really, you know. Yeah, I when I saw that happen, because I was like, were they aiming at him because you were with somebody else? And I was like, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, I don't. But the the reality is, and this is what was so funny. I had there were people like people blew it. Really, it was gross. I like I <laughs> throw up and I like, you know, showered at home like, you know, ASAP and stuff. But, you know, but like it's not the end of the world. OK, like I like I'm OK. You can, I, I sit here in front of you uh, basically healthy. Uh, you know, I'm fine. I don't not no po no permanent damage as far as I know. Some people lost their freaking minds about it on Twitter. I had some. Pe there were people like like tweeting like the po the Providence police should find every every person who is dressed in black and arrest them all on conspiracy of attempted murder. They were like he it could have had diseases. He literally tried to kill you. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, you know, I I actually I always get a chuckle out of that because you know, I, I'm sure you've been hit with pepper spray or tear gas or something from the cops yeah. covering one of these or a beanbag rubber bullet, whatever. You know, when that happens, people are just like, eh, well, whatever, it's your job, you know. But that <laughs> But let it be some anybody other than a cop, <laughs> and, and they are. They're ready to that that person deserves. <laughs> and I this was the thing I actually wrote on Twitter. I was like, I I realized that you know I think it's unfortunate if someone intentionally targeted press. I think that would be wrong. 
but to the extent that I go out like outside to these situations and and smush myself between the left and the right to film them do disgusting things to each other, yeah, eventually uh, some some pee is going to get thrown on my head. It's only happened once so far. It's not like it's it's not like this is daily. Like you know, I don't have to wear like a, a bucket on my head to like you know protect myself. So you know, I'll I'll live. <laughs> Um, but what I wrote on Twitter actually very specifically is I'm actually not interested in attempting to figure out who this person is. You know, they might be watching this interview right now. And, you know, if <laughs> good shot, Red Leader. I don't care. <laughs> um, and, and further and more specifically, if the police ever attempted to prosecute that person, I, I would not participate in their prosecution. Um, to to the extent that the law allows me to to say I'm not I'm not helping. Um, <laughs> so it happens. Yeah. I I think that on the whole, part of the problem is that the media have become what it what it expresses is that the media have become so uh, politicized that to some extent they are indistinguishable from activists. I think that when people criticize Fox News as practically being an arm of the state as it exists today, um, that's partially true. There are, I, I don't think every show is the same and I don't think every journalist is the same. Uh, but I think that when you watch certain shows on that network, it is, it is you know, pro-Trump uh, no matter what he does, right? Like he said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, right? If he actually did that, Hannity would be like, well, what did the guy do? Right, like, um, or better yet, he would say like, "Well, he would say it was just I know what the guy did, and he did, has no idea." No, so, um, but it, but it's all but it's especially true out on the streets there, where uh, you do have uh, certain elements who are you know YouTubers who are really explicitly one side or the other. You do have um, people like I actually am quite friendly with Unicorn Riot, for example. Um, the the folks at Unicorn Riot basically are um anti-fascist journalists that's what they do they they don't pretend to be uh neutral they don't pretend to be unbiased they film basically the same situations i do but they have a very specific uh uh goal which is to escalate the views of the anti-fascists criticize the right-wingers and criticize the police um but they make that Where are you? Are you in like Fallujah? What is what? <laughs> No, I'm in my house and <laughs> and nobody else is uh, is awake. My girlfriend is sleeping there. Every other like I checked downstairs, no one's playing on video games or anything. I have no idea why the connection is uh doing this. So, we pay for the fancy like Verizon or Comcast or whatever it is. Um anyway, um what I was trying to say is well, I just described that like Unicorn Riot is is very ostensibly biased and they say so. Um, there are some people who will go out on the street and they clearly are of one persuasion and then they try to hide behind, you know, well, I'm not actually because I'm, you know, whatever. And and so you'll have kind of right wing YouTubers who try to hit the Antifa lottery <laughs> by, being, you know, by being punched or something. And again, I'm not justifying violence against any kind of YouTuber or journalist or so forth. But it has become increasingly difficult to tell people I really, really, actually, sincerely am out here 
to just show exactly what is happening, right? And so I I have found that sometimes it is easier to film situations that are one-sided, right? When I go to a protest and it's just, say, a, a Palestinian protest and there's no meaningful opposition, there's no anti-Palestine people who are actually uh, out there to, to participate in that um, or something, then sometimes it can be a lot easier um, because the those people feel like, oh, this person's not like with the opposition. Um, but it can be difficult uh, in those situations that are two-sided when people say, you know, which side is he is he on? Um, there was a moment in Charlottesville that might be illuminating to this uh, issue, which is that one of the first really big brawls that happened that morning, um, when it, it it was probably 30 seconds of of at least 20 to 30 people, you know, duking it out, like hitting each other with flagpoles and stuff. And by the time that this had partially fizzled out, there was one uh, girl from the left who was behind the like neo-Nazi side. And it was literally, it was the traditionalist workers party, hardcore neo-Nazi types. She was sort of behind her enemy lines, I guess. And she starts to, uh, walk sort of deeper into them and she's saying something like it's a public street i can do this she's trying to challenge them by literally just trying to walk by them and they throw her on the ground and she gets up and they throw her on the ground again and uh and then when she stood up again somebody maced her in the face and she and now she's blind and she basically walks past me and and goes um but when i when i looked at my footage afterwards there was a moment that i i hadn't noticed when it actually happened which is that as all of this is happening, they're basically beating this woman up. Uh, one of the neo-Nazi dudes looks at another after looking at me and he goes, I can't tell which side he's on. That, and so it was in that moment, like there's a there's this one little moment where I realized looking back on it, they're deciding whether or not I'm with her. And and the result of that quick calculation is going to show whether I'm, I'm the next person to get maced in the face. Um, I wasn't maced in that particular moment, but the fact that a person with a camera, it's not even, is he on a side or are we misunderstanding him as a journalist when he's an activist? It was literally, which side is he on, is what they're saying of the camera person who has a bulletproof vest that says press on it. Um, I think that that's a dangerous environment to be in where where media is is assumed to be on one side or the other. And and I hope to be an anecdote to that dichotomy, um, but, it's, but it's difficult. Uh, people still, I get... I get messages or comments that people are like, you know, you libtard, how dare you film X, Y, Z. It happens even all the way through now to uh, the impeachment situation. I had um, I had a raw footage shot of Fiona Hill exiting the um, exiting her testimony uh, in front of Congress. It's literally just a shot of Fiona Hill uh, walking out the door of the congressional building and into a black SUV. Nothing is said. It's just footage. It's just basically stock video of her leaving. There's not a single word in the video. And the description was extremely simple. It was like Fiona Hill, after testifying in the impeachment hearing, exits Congress and enters a black SUV. I had a comment that said, <laughs> news to share is with the libs. They're always injecting their leftist opinions. I have no idea. I have no idea where, you know, um, where that person got that idea from. But again, it was just the assumption. Oh, he, he took a video of a anti-Trump person. So news to share is now anti-Trump, right? I think this is the the unfortunate issue is that people just don't have a concept of objective news anymore. Well, it, it, it doesn't exist as much as it used to. I mean, and there are a lot of people, 
um, that have just given up on even trying to be objective. I mean, I, I don't even pretend anymore. <laughs> and that's fine. I think it's more valuable, though, to have somebody like you who is who is very clear about where they're coming from. Even if you don't use the A word, we all know. <laughs> Asshole. No, I'm just kidding. Not that one. Uh, <laughs> um. No, the big, the big old circle A, right? So, I mean, basically you describe this, these are my opinions, this is my vision, this is my worldview, right? And then you're interviewing, you know, people who might agree with it or disagree with it, but it's pretty clear where you come from when you watch your gener your channel generally. Um, I tell people what my political views are when asked uh, most of the time in the context of not the new stuff, right? So it says what political party I am. Uh, on my Facebook. If you go into my about, you'll see which party I'm registered with. I don't love political parties, but I do have one there. You're a libertarian? <laughs> what, are, what are you? I yeah, don't know. But, a libertarian? Yeah. But, I mean, almost symbolically, I don't know. <laughs> um, but the but my point is that, that you wouldn't actually know it from watching my video journalism because it doesn't have me and my opinions in it. Um, and I think the problem happens when it is sort of all, all mushed together, where it's very obvious watching a news network what people what these people think of what they're talking about, and and yet they won't actually frame it that way, right? Breitbart doesn't frame itself entirely as opinion news, right? It claims that it's hard news, and then it's you know only writing about the absolutely most outlandish leftist stories to make them look you know bonkers or whatever it is. They're clearly agenda driven even if they say they're not. And so I think that's made people really skeptical of uh, the possibility that there can be raw news out there. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard. Um, and especially, I mean, I found it hard because I, I did, well, I mean, I did with still photography, but I, I did the same thing embedded in the protests. And I just, I couldn't not pick a side. I actually have a lot of respect for you for, for being able to remain neutral because like there, there, there were times when I was asked, you know, do you have the card from this date? And no, I lost it, man. <laughs> um, you know, um, I, I, I don't know that there is, if you're going to interject anything whatsoever with what you do, you literally just document it. But if you had to take that footage and write a story about it, mm -hmm. I don't know that you would be able to maintain that same level of detachment. Your, your biases are going to come through. And that was one of the things I realized after a couple of years, I was like, there, there's, I mean, it's still here. It doesn't matter how much I try for it not to be. It's still here. All right. Um, so, well, I think that the, there's a word that you said in there that I take issue to with it, which is neutral, right? So th we have to break down what the word neutral means, right? If we're, you know, if you're neutral or centrist, right, it might be another word for neutral. This is kind of CNN's thing, right? We have on a left, we have on a, a Trump advisor, and then we have on a, a DNC strategist, and therefore the network is neutral. That doesn't mean that they're getting at truth. Maybe they're neutral, maybe they're centrist, debatable, but maybe they're centrist. But But that doesn't mean that the outcome is truth. When I go out, I'm not trying to be neutral. I'm trying to be objective. I'm trying to show that this is the thing happening. And I'm trying to as completely 
and and like you said, perhaps detached of my own views. I'm trying to show exactly what happens, but that's different from neutrality. Neutrality is making a statement that these things are equivalent to one another, right? So so if you have two protests and uh, you know one is we think that that <laughs> bombing. Uh, Mars is a really bad idea. And the other someone says, we think that nuking Mars is actually a great idea. You know, neutrality would be me standing there with a microphone after interviewing both sides. Well, as you can see, both sides had some really, really interesting points. I think that the view that we should nuke Mars is the same as the view that we should not not nuke Mars. And in fact, it might be reasonable to say we should nuke Mars a little. I'm Ford Fisher. <laughs> this is news to share. <laughs> Right. Obviously, that's not what I do when when I'm going out there and I'm showing both sides. I am not making a statement of their equivalence. And I think that this is part of the problem where I mean, literally the term I think, right, Donald Trump, Donald Trump made a claim of neutrality. Donald Trump said, I think there were many fine people on both sides. Right. And everybody looked at that and said, that's that's bonkers. That's right. And they said, if you're if you're neutral in this situation, we know what side you're picking, right? Um, that that's what neutrality is. I'm I'm not making any claim about the validity of either side. I'm saying, look for yourself. I trust you, the American people, the world, to have a big enough brain to to look at these things and decide one side is better than the other. I I clearly can have my own opinion of of most situations. On a, I will say that on a rare occasion, I actually will film a situation where I'm I'm personally in my brain thinking, gee, I'm glad that I don't have to uh, uh, come up with my own answer on this. Um, it doesn't happen very often. I usually know what I think of most situations. Um, but, you know, some sometimes those those moments have come up. Um, but again, so that's the distinction between objectivity and neutrality. All right. Well, we're going to we're we're running long on time here. Um, so. Question I ask everybody that comes on, give us a solution. Doesn't matter what it's to, but you got a problem. Give us a solution that an individual person can enact on their own. Tell us how to change the world in one easy step. I would say be your own uh, media. So in in my case, uh, you know, I go out to situations and I film them um, and I try to film them in a very raw and complete way and so forth, but I'm still only one camera. Right. I'm still only one person. Um, you know, I hire people uh, to the extent that I can to film things when I when I can't be there. Um, but at the end of the day, I have limited resources, obviously. Um, so to people out there who share this concern, uh, try to support independent journalists so they can do more uh, financially or otherwise. Uh, but also per try to do it yourself. If you live in a city where you know that something uh, interesting is going to happen. If if Donald Trump is going to hold a rally in your city, uh, you don't have to go and and film him speak because there's a million other people who are going to do that and broadcast it all over the place. Uh, but a lot of interesting things happen outside Trump rallies. Uh, <laughs> go out there and if you know if something is going on outside, people might be protesting Trump for one reason or another. Uh, people might be protesting the people protesting Trump for one reason or another. You know, the, I think that the more cameras that are out there, especially the more cameras that are out there live streaming these things, uh, the better of a historical record we're going to have uh, when this is all finished with to look back and say, uh, what in the world happened? Um, 
how did we how did we get here what happened how did we get out of it um you know history is going to need raw documentation uh and real actual primary source um video and i don't think the mainstream media is really uh providing it so be be your own media all right and now all right parting shot plug us plug something yeah okay so i will say that uh one of the one of the real problems is that i have been demonetized by youtube because they can't tell the difference between uh content that covers violence or covers uh hate or covers controversial opinions and just being those things uh youtube is as uh stupid as the the issues that um i've uh kind of laid out the the distinctions that people fail to make so unfortunately i've i've been demonetized so i uh mostly run on the support of people on patreon so if you want to check out my patreon it's patreon.com slash Ford Fisher, F-O-R-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. The outlet is called News to Share, so you can find news, the number to share, one word, uh, both as a website, newstoshare.com, on Facebook, and on uh, YouTube, and then I'm at Ford Fisher on Twitter. Your whole channel has been demonetized, or? Yeah. Oh, I thought they just hit like like almost all your videos i didn't know that like no, they no, just... no. so no this is the problem so i'll well let's do this for a little tiny bit okay the, uh so before there was an automated decision that would be made when i'd upload a video as to whether it would be monetization eligible or not based on just the words you know in the description or something and so a lot of my videos would be auto demonetized but almost exactly six months ago now um my entire there was a there was a, a a sort of purge where YouTube said we're broadening our community standards, and they uh, demonetized many entire channels, including my, so my entire channel has been demonetized for six months now. So so I understand why when I film you know an act of like street violence, two people just like punching the crap out of each other until the cops break it up and punch someone some more, right? I understand why they don't want to go, DiGiorno's, it's delicious. You should get some DiGiorno's tonight. It only takes 23 minutes to bake in the oven. Mmm. And then it, like, shows a fight, right? I get why they don't want to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, I ha- most of my content does not involve violence or hate. Most of my content is peaceful, peaceful demonstration, uh, some press conferences, right? You know, pretty you know uh i would say uncontroversial news stuff and yes the entire video the entire channel is demonetized so every single video has no capacity to uh make revenue for me so i'm entirely at the mercy of people who would uh uh, contribute to my patreon on a monthly basis wow okay all right so that's uh that's ford fisher and we're going to get out of here. And I guess let's see, that's pretty much a show. So uh, it's just a thought. Y'all have a good night.